and adventures that gave me so much joy and showed me who I wanted to become. Someone with a love of honor and bravery in the face of fear, not just for my friends, but anyone in need. I knew even then that God gave me a desire to protect, to shield those who are oppressed and fight back against evil. And I feel like now I am doing what I was meant to do. I don't regret that I might need to lay down my life for this cause, because I am doing it so that you can continue to live in peace. And I am honored to serve alongside my brothers and sisters in arms who have given me hope day after day when things have felt so dark. And even though I don't know what will happen tomorrow, I trust that God has a plan for me and my service to this country. I know you're worried, but if something happens to me, you must remember this. My death will not be the end of my life. It will endure into heaven because the same God who inspired me to defend others carried out the ultimate act of love by dying for my salvation. And I know that whether I return to you safely or find peace in the arms of Christ above, I will have served honorably. Thank you so much for your love and your remembrance. It means more to me than I can say. I love you and I'll see you soon. something this week it said Monday will be the most expensive holiday on the calendar every hot dog every burger every spin around the lake every drink with friends and family is a debt a debt that's purchased by others this is not about all hoops served because that day comes in the fall this one tomorrow Memorial Day is in honor of those who paid in life and blood, whose moms never saw them again, whose dads wept in private, whose wives raised their children alone, and whose kids only remember them from pictures. Tomorrow is not simply a day off. It's a day to remember that others have paid for every free breath that you get to take. That's freedom. And see, I can think of no better prayer to pray on this Memorial Day than Jesus come. Your will be done in our lives and in our land. And, and I talk about that prayer, I say that prayer. The reason that I think that prayer is so important is that since the very beginning, this nation was founded by seeking the favor and the very blessing of God. We are one nation under God. Now think about that phrase. 
one nation under God. It's a very, it's the very phrase that they're trying to take out of the Pledge of Allegiance. It's the phrase that they're trying to strike from our history. Yet our nation was founded under the authority and the blessing of God Almighty. So this morning, I just want to, I want to give you a little history lesson because the, the history lesson in and of itself is going to help us to where we're going to go today. See, when our founding fathers got together, they started by looking at the Word of God, the Bible, the Scripture. They started looking at the Bible for guidance. I mean, think about it. Patrick Henry, Patrick Henry, the guy who was most known for saying, give me liberty or give me death. Here's what he actually said. Look at the screen behind me. He said, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but this nation was founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was George Washington who said, You do well to learn above all the religion of Jesus Christ. And in 1787, when there was a, a heated argument going on in the Continental Congress, a lot of arguing back and forth going on on the congressional floor. It was the old statesman himself, Benjamin Franklin, who took his cane and he tapped it on the floor to get the attention of everybody. And he stood up and he slowly rose from his chair. And these are the words of Benjamin Franklin. I therefore beg that prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessing on our deliberation to be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Benjamin Franklin was saying, basically, we need to open every morning with prayer. And you know what happened after he said that? Congress took a two-day leave of absence so that they could pray and they could seek the heart of God. They actually called the nation to pray and to fast with them. And then they came back and they voted that at no time would a session of Congress open without prayer. And now every time you go to the Senate or to the House, they open every session with prayer. But isn't it ironic? That we can open Congress with prayer, but we can't open our schools with prayer. We can open Congress with prayer, but we can't pray at a football game. But thank God this morning we can still open our churches with prayer. So if you will, again, let's take a moment and let's pray, and let's ask God's blessing on this time together. God, we come to you thanking you for the benefit of being able to worship together. For being able to assemble ourselves together, and to worship you, and to pray without fear of anything happening to us. 
God, we just pray in this moment that you would open our eyes and open our ears to be able to hear every word that you would have us to say. And we ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. See, we need to understand that as our nation was being formed, it was the Word of God that remained central to the formation of this country. Our founding fathers didn't, didn't, you know, didn't use little bitty excerpts drawn from the Bible, but they actually would use the biblical text itself in the founding of our country. Thomas Jefferson, who was superintendent of Washington, D.C. schools, at the very same time he was serving as the president of the United States. Thomas Jefferson is the, a man, is the man who is accredited with the phrase that many of us hear on the news and from politicians, you know, all across both political spectrums. He's the guy who coined the phrase, the separation of church and state. He's also the guy who required that the Bible be taught in all grades, in all classrooms, throughout the Washington, D.C. school system. Thomas Jefferson, superintendent of schools, president of the United States. See, I've, I've heard it said that, and I believe this, that if you tell people a lie long enough, they'll believe it. Because I think that's a lot of what we see on social media. I think, let me, let me just be really dead honest with you, and again, I'm not going to leave any stone unturned. It's the same, the lies you hear on NBC and CBS and NBC and Fox and CNN. I mean, the, I think they have come to believe that if they just tell us long enough that we'll end up believing it. And I think that's what a lot of people are doing. That's why we talked about this in our Social Dilemma series that we finished a couple of weeks ago. Because, see, it's that phrase that, Thomas Jefferson originated the separation of church and state. That's the phrase that seems to get kicked around a lot. But can I just tell you this morning that that phrase is not in the Declaration of Independence. It's not in the Constitution. It's not even in the Bill of Rights. That statement, separation of church and state is actually found in a letter that President Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist Association. And he wrote that letter because he was afraid, or the Danbury Association was afraid, that the government was going to try to form a church, a state church, and then ultimately to try to control the different denominations throughout the country. So Thomas Jefferson responded by writing a letter, and here's an excerpt that you see on the screen behind me. It's a quote from that actual letter. This is what he said. Legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Here it is. Thus building a wall of separation between church and state. And here's the thing. When you read his full letter, 
Thomas Jefferson was saying, that that wall is there so that government cannot control or government cannot influence the church. But Thomas Jefferson would never not expect the church to be able to influence the government. This is the man who required the Bible as a textbook in the schools in Washington, D.C. And I think about what he really intended when he said about the separation of church and state and how different that really is from what we've been led to believe by our politicians now and by the news media now. Because our politicians today have convinced us that our nation was founded on the separation of church and state. When in fact, it is quite the opposite. As a matter of fact, I don't know whether you know this, and I, I think I'm right. You can probably Google it and see. Well, don't do it now, but do it later. But the tallest structure in Washington, D.C. is the Washington Monument. The Washington Monument. I've been up to the very top. You know, it's got like a, like a pyramid. I, I'm almost, almost scared to do that, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, it, it's, it's, like, it's like, anyway, it's like that, okay? So I'm not going to put that other one in there. So, I mean, it's at the very top, and you can look out. There's a little hole. I've been up in it a couple of times. But on that monument itself are inscribed three different phrases that I want to show you. Here they are. Holiness to the Lord. In God we trust. And search the scriptures. But what's really interesting to me is on the very top of that script, on the very top of that Washington Monument are two words. Laos Deo. They're at the very top. And you can't see those two words. But those two words are there. Those two words are right there on the tallest structure in Washington, D.C., and what most people would say is the most powerful city in all of the world. And those two words, Laos, Deo, here's what they mean. Praise be to God. That's the declaration that encapsulates the prayer of the founding fathers of our country. These men who came together, these men who were far from perfect, but they set out to build one nation under God. And when you think back, you start to see that there was even a time when our federal courts were not hostile to God. In 1892, the majority opinion of the Supreme, Supreme Court in the case Holy Trinity versus the United States, here's what the Supreme Court said. Look at it behind me. Our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teaching of the Redeemer of mankind. And it's impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense and to this extent, our civilizations and our institutions are emphatically Christian. 
1930, the Supreme Court said, we are a Christian people. The right of religious freedom demands obedience to the will of God. And it was Chief Justice Earl Warren in 1954 that said, I believe that no one can read the history of our country without realizing that the good book and the spirit of the Savior from the very beginning have been our guiding geniuses. But somewhere in the 1960s, that's when things began to change. It was in the 1960s that the, that the Supreme Court ruled that, that prayer could not be in our schools. It ruled that having kids pray in school was actually harmful to their well-being. I mean, think about that. A, a kid praying in school was psychologically damaging to them. So the Supreme Court said, you know what? We're going to take prayer out of the schools. But here's the thing. I want to show you the prayer that was so damaging to the children in the 1960s. And a matter of fact, I don't want to just show it to you this morning. I want you to see it and read it. And I want us to pray this prayer out loud together. Look at the screen behind me and let's pray it together. All together. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee. And we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Amen. Isn't that awful? How would you like for your kid to have to go back to school in the fall and actually pray that prayer? Wouldn't that be terrible? Wouldn't it just kill their psychology? I mean, I, I just don't even understand it. But that's the prayer. And that's the reason prayer was taken out of schools. And then we go to the 1980s. That's when they removed the Ten Commandments from our schools and from our courthouses. We've taken God out of the school. We've taken God out of the courthouse, which basically means that we've kicked God out. And as a nation, we're now reaping the consequences. Because kids have grown up not knowing God. They've grown up not knowing God. They've grown up not knowing God's ways. It's really interesting because in the 1940s, teachers were surveyed. And they were asked, what are the top problems with kids and what they're facing in school at that time in the 1940s? Guess what the top three things were? Talking out of turn. Running down the hall. And chewing gum. Am I right? Today, you know what the top concerns are? Teen suicide, violence, and bullying among students. And when we look at the condition of our country and we see how far we've come, it can sometimes feel hopeless. But look at what it says in Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations be destroyed, what can we do? If the foundations are destroyed, 
What can the righteous do? That's us, the, the followers of Jesus. We're the righteous. What can the righteous do? What are the righteousness of Christ? That's who we are. We are the righteousness of Christ. But what can we do? Because our foundations have been destroyed. So what can we do? Well, I just want to quote my good friend Lucy Jackson this morning. God bless that woman. Who I hope is watching if somebody, somebody text her right now and tell her if she ain't online, she needs to get online, okay? Who's watching from North Carolina. She always, regardless of what was happening, was going to tell me, anybody want to say it? God has a plan. She would always tell me God has a plan. And Lucy, this morning, I just want to tell you, nothing can be further from the truth. Because we see that all throughout Scripture. All throughout the Bible, when things seemed hopeless, God had a plan. I mean, just think about it. When the flood was coming, God worked through Noah. When Daniel was in the lion's den, it wasn't the end. It was an opportunity. It was an opportunity for God to turn things around. And even as bad as things are in our country today, I need you to hear me say, Crossroads, God has a plan today. And what I know is this. Look at the screen behind me. When God's people are following God's plan, they will receive God's promises. When the people of God are following the plan of God, they will receive the promise of God. So let me read to you God's plan on this Memorial Day. And it comes out of the Old Testament where God is speaking. And this is what he says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's God's plan. But I want you to notice something. That plan's directed at you. That plan is directed at me. That plan is directed at God's people. That plan isn't for the politicians in the, in the state capitol in Nashville, Tennessee. That plan isn't for the politicians in Washington, D.C. That plan isn't for the people who are on the other side of the aisle from what you are. No, that plan is directed at you and at me. God's people. If God's people will follow God's plan, then God promises that he will heal our land. I don't know if you've thought about it like this, but God places the condition of this country on your shoulders. God places the condition of our nation on the shoulders of the people who know him. And if we, God's people, will humble ourselves and pray, then he promises that he will heal our land. Because prayer, listen, listen, 
prayer is what connects us to God. It connects us to God, the only one who can truly do what we need him to do. You've probably heard people use a phrase or a statement, prayer changes things, and it does. Because prayer moves the hand of the one who holds the world. But can I tell you something? Of all the things that prayer changes, the most important thing that prayer changes is you and me. Because here's the thing, prayer gets you and me in step with God. Prayer tunes our heart to the heartbeat of heaven. And when we're in tune with God, we can be used by God. We, the people of God, can be used to turn a nation back to God. I'm very open and honest with you guys, sometimes to a fault. And I'm going to be open and honest with you this morning and tell you that I watched with some skepticism the revival that was happening up in Kentucky a couple of months ago at Asbury. Because, I, again, I've gotten to the point where I don't know what to believe on social media and what's really happening but I started seeing the revival and the talk of the revival and, and, and the things that were being experienced at that revival. And, and anytime you're, you're hearing about a revival of any kind, whether it's local or, or something of that magnitude, you're naturally drawn to the word revival. And the word revival finds its origin in the word revive, which actually means to, to bring back to life, to live again, to restore back to life. And when you think about all the great revivals of history, all the great revivals that have happened in our world, that is exactly what those things have done. Those revivals have brought life back to the people of God. They brought life back to a nation who sought the very face of God. And if you look back at all of the revivals that have been experienced in our history, you quickly see that that is exactly what those revivals have done. But if you look a little deeper, you start to see that those revivals have things in common with each other. And, and before I talk about those things that those revivals have in common with each other, you just got to understand that when you look at all the revivals that have happened in our history, those revivals were birthed out of a place of desperation. For example, the, the revival that shook Wall Street, it actually broke out after the stock market collapsed in 1957. The stock market collapsed in 1957 and prayer broke out all through the city of New York. People were looking, businessmen were looking for a place. They would take their lunch hour and they would go to that place and they would spend their lunch hour in prayer, desperately seeking for God because people were desperate for God. 
And it's amazing how desperation causes us to seek God. Because nobody thinks about God when the bills are paid. Everybody's having fun. Everybody's going on vacation. Life is great. Everybody's healthy. See, when everything in life is good, we just kind of tend to ignore God. But the moment you face a crisis, the moment you get a bad doctor's report, the moment you have a problem with your child, the moment you lose your job, you're immediately in prayer. God, God, where are you? God, help me. God, I need you. It's the trial that causes you to turn. It's the anguish that causes you to cry out to the Almighty. And can I just tell you this morning, we are in a desperate place in our nation right now. Some of the things that we see happening in our country, those are the things that are causing you and I to cry out, God, heal our land. God, these senseless killings have got to stop. Our community needs you, God. We need you. But it's our desperation. That's the very thing that positions us for revival. And what our country needs more than gas to go down, more than supply chain issues to go away, more than lower housing prices, more than the economy to get fixed and things to work on all cylinders. We need revival. America needs revival in our land. We need a fresh wind of the Spirit of God to blow over this church and to blow over this nation. So I looked at the revivals of our history. And I'm going to tell you this morning that as I looked at the revivals that have happened, uh, Asbury, Wall Street, Azusa, I mean, there, there are countless. They, they all had three things in common that just popped right out to the surface. And here's the first thing I want you to see. The first thing is repentance. There was a call to repentance. See, more, more than just a recognition of sin, what repentance really is, repentance is a, a deep resolve, a remorse. It's, it, it's me saying I'm going to turn away from the sin that I've been involved in. But here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that you and I have become numb to sin. I think we've, been, we've, we've become comfortable to sin. Because here's the thing, you see sin in your movies, on your television. You hear it in the jokes that you're telling. So without even realizing it, we have become callous to sin. We've maybe even become comfortable with sin. And I think in many ways we've gotten to the place where we don't even consider sin to be sin. Because our culture has rationalized. Our culture has justified. 
what the Bible clearly calls sin. But if we ever expect God to bring revival to our nation, then it's on us. It's on our shoulders. We as the people of God. We are the ones who have got to repent for the sin that is in our lives. We are the ones who have got to to repent for the sin that we've gotten comfortable with. See, that verse in 2 Chronicles 7.14 says this. It says, if they will turn from their wicked ways, and people say, Randy, you don't think what I'm really doing is like wicked, do you? Well, yeah, it is. Anything that is opposed to God and His way and His will is wicked. You don't want to think that what you're doing is wicked, but it's wicked. Because wicked means anything that is in opposition to God. Anything that pulls you away from the will and the way of God. Anything that pulls you away from God's best is wicked. And I think that we can all admit that we have allowed some things in our lives. We have allowed things in our life that clearly aren't God's best. So I guess all of us in this room and those watching online can say, we're doing some wicked stuff. And see, here's what repentance is. Repentance is allowing the Holy Spirit to show you those things. And then confessing those things and turning away from those things. Repentance is not saying, I'm sorry, and then going and doing the same sin again. That's not repentance. The word in the Bible that translates repentance is metanoia, which means to change your mind. It's a conscious decision to think in accordance with the way that God thinks. You're going to align your thinking with the world instead of the with the word instead of the world. You're going to align your thought process and your heart with the ways of the Word of God instead of the world. So to be able to align your thinking with the Word requires you to know the Word. Because if you don't know the Word, then you're not going to know what God thinks. And if you don't know what God thinks, then we will think what we think or what we feel is right, or what Hollywood thinks, or what your favorite athlete thinks, or what your favorite influencer thinks. See, we let those things shape us instead of God shaping us. That, that, That word picture for repentance is is actually you're going one direction and you stop and you turn and you go in another direction. You're going one direction and you make a 180 degree turn and you go in a different direction. That's the word picture for repentance. You're going your own way and you stop and you turn and you make a conscious decision to go God's way. Because that's what repentance really is. 
Has somebody ever done something to you where, you know, they had to apologize? And it was really a bad apology because you knew that they weren't really sorry? Well, repentance is the opposite of that. Repentance is taking responsibility. Repentance is admitting that you're wrong and turning and doing what is right. And what God was saying in the Scripture, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, is that this is the kind of repentance that's going to be required for revival. Because let me tell you, listen, I want you to, I want you to understand, because I don't think most of you understand this. God is not asking the politicians to repent, although they probably need to. What did he say? If my people, if my people will turn from their wicked ways, God's people, if God's people will turn from their wicked ways, here's what you have, to, you have to understand. This is what you have to see. God places the condition of our nation on the shoulders of those who know him best. God puts the responsibility of this country on your shoulders and my shoulders. Look at the screen. Because revival requires repentance. So let me ask you, I, 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 let me tell you, I, I know you were thinking watermelon and ice cream today. It ain't happening, baby. I know this is heavy. So what do you need to repent from? Is there anything this morning on Memorial Day weekend that you need to repent from today? I mean, think about it right now. Even in the darkness of this room, is the Holy Spirit speaking to you and reminding you, bringing something to your mind that you know you're doing that isn't God's best for you? Then just confess that to Him. And turn from, don't go back to it like a pig to slop. Turn and walk away from it. Because revival requires repentance. Here's the second characteristic that I noticed of all the revivals that I looked at, the major revivals. It's holiness. A call to holiness. And again, that word is not one of those words that you see very much today. But you know what the Bible says? Without holiness, listen, 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 listen. Without holiness, you're not going to see God. That hurts. It stings. It's like mercuricomb. Without holiness, you're not going to see God. See, here's the thing about repentance and holiness. Repentance and holiness, they go hand in hand. In fact, you can't have one without the other. Repentance is saying, God, I'm going to do life your way. I'm going to turn from my wicked ways and go your way. And as you invite the Holy Spirit into your life and allow Him to have His way over your attitudes and your intentions and your thought life, then when the Holy Spirit comes into your life, He produces a spirit of holiness inside of you. 
Because listen, holiness is not something that you do. Holiness is not something that you try to make happen. But it's actually the work of the Spirit of God. And it's what He does once He takes up residence inside of you. He is the Holy Spirit producing His Spirit of holiness inside of us. And when you look at revivals of the past, there was a distinct call to holiness among God's people. Because, listen, the closer you get to God, the further you move away from sin. The closer you get to God, the more you become like Him. And when you're in God's presence you begin to hunger for more of him. Because, listen, the things of this world just don't satisfy you anymore. And it was during those times of revival when God's people are seeking God's presence. That's when God shows up. And let me tell you, when God shows up, he changes things. Remember I said the greatest thing he changes is you and me. So the question is this. Are you allowing, listen, 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 listen. Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work in your life? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out? Are you listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he tries to correct you and redirect you? If not, why don't you invite him in today? Why don't you just invite him into your life right now and say, say, come Holy Spirit, come into my life. Come and change the things in me that are not of Jesus. Come and produce your spirit of holiness inside of me. And let me tell you, let me tell you, when you invite him to do that, he will do it. But listen to his voice and follow his instructions as he produces that spirit of holiness. Because that is a characteristic of the people of God that were involved in the revivals of our history and our past. So we have repentance, we have holiness. Here's the third characteristic. It's prayer. There was a call to prayer. Because all of the revivals that I have studied, you know where all those revivals started? They started in a prayer room somewhere. All the revivals of history started in a prayer room somewhere. People would gather for prayer, and they wouldn't gather just for an hour or two, but people would stay, and they would stay, and they would stay, and they would pray all night if they had to. And that's what we saw happen in Asbury. Again, uh, you know, like I said, I initially had questions, but they gathered, and it started as a prayer meeting. A worship time where prayer was the focus, and it went on, and it went on, and it went on. That, that's the way they started. And people would pray. They would Listen, I know it, it's something we can't fathom. They would pray for days on end. They would pray, and they would seek the heart of God. 
And buildings could not even contain the number of people that came to pray. And while people were there, they were seeing miraculous things, crazy miraculous things happening right in front of them. Because look at what it says in Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, it says this, Seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that's what they were doing. They were seeking God with all their heart. And prayer was the key that opened the door to God's power and God's presence. And that's the thing that shook our nation. In that verse back in 2 Chronicles, it says, If my people will humble themselves and pray, Because you see, the opposite of humility is pride. And that's why we don't pray. You don't pray because you don't think you need God. You think you can do it on your own. But see, when we recognize just how desperate we really are for God, just how much we really need Him, It drives us to our knees in prayer. James said this in James 4, verse 2. You don't have because you don't ask. You don't have because you don't ask God. You don't have because you don't pray. And James is telling us that we're lacking You're lacking in your life. We're lacking in our church. We're lacking because we don't pray. We lack prayer. And let me just tell you, it's natural as a human being to have a problem. And you know what? We just worry about it. I just worry about the problem. And like you, most of the time I worry more about the problem than I pray about the problem. You know, I have a problem in my life, and you know what I'll do? I'll talk to everybody about that problem. When God is just sitting over there waiting for me to talk to Him about that problem. And we're like, well, why why, why would I pray about it when I can worry about it, right? I mean, right? Why do I want to pray about it when I can just worry about it and stress over it? Why would I talk to God about my problem when I can call my friend? People, we need to talk to God. Because let me tell you this morning, not only in our lives, but in our nation, we're facing a problem. We're facing a host of problems. And more than we need to post about those problems, listen to me, Crossroads, on social media, you need to start praying about the problems in this country. More than we need to wrestle with somebody who has a different perspective than what we do. We need to go to God and we need to wrestle with Him in prayer. We need to pray and we need to ask God to heal our land. To ask God to turn His face on our country once again. 
to breathe new life into his people and to revive us and revive our hearts and to stir a passion for holiness and repentance among the people of God once again. Because listen to me, Crossroads, if we're ever going to see revival in this country, it starts with us. It starts with you and it starts with me. Listen listen to me. Revival isn't something that happens out there somewhere. Revival starts right here. Revival starts with us because you and I are revival carriers. And the greatest thing that you can do as a follower of Jesus Christ is to pray for our nation. Because God, listen, listen, listen. God can do more in seconds than man can do in centuries. And I realize that there are lots of things out there that you can raise your voice for. There are things out there that you're concerned about in our nation. But the most important place that we need to raise our voice is towards the heavens. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And our prayer is, Jesus, come. Thy will be done in our lives and in our land. Would you bow your heads this morning and pray with me, please? God, we hear, we hear this from 2 Chronicles 7, 14, and it's so easy to think that you're talking about other people. But you're talking about your people. The condition of this country is on the shoulders of the people who know you the best. It's up to them to do something about it. It's a call to prayer. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to holiness. That God, if we want to see you do a new thing in our lives and in our country, it rests with the people of God, not the politicians, but it rests with the people of God to get on their knees and to repent and to seek holiness in prayer. So God, we take this weekend as we remember those who gave the ultimate sacrifice, who allow us to breathe every breath of freedom because of their sacrifice. But maybe today we as the people of God realize that we need to make a sacrifice of time and focus and that we need to be on our knees praying for this country that you God would do what only you could do as we ask this prayer in Jesus name Amen
it's our responsibility as the people of God to do something about it. And that means a call to prayer and repentance and holiness. And it may mean some things that we're going to change here in the coming days and weeks. That remains to be seen as I continue to seek God and what that looks like. We'll let you know in the coming days.